1.5 kilohertz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu driving the show with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Tami Guza. Top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. The situation in Egypt deteriorates despite international bodies calling for a peaceful resolution. And Somalia's federal government is demanding the immediate withdrawal of Nairobi's troops from its country. In sports news, Kenya earns 2018 Rugby World Cup ticket. But first, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi says he will not step down and has accused remnants of the previous regime of being behind the deadly unrest rocking the country. In a televised speech earlier, Morsi described himself as the guardian of legitimacy, saying he would continue shouldering the responsibility despite calls by his opponents for him to step down. The Egyptian president stated that he gained power in a democratic election and has no problem with peaceful demonstrations, but stressed there is no room for violence, killing and fabrications. Meanwhile, the Egyptian health ministry says that the country's security forces clashed with Morsi supporters in Cairo, killing at least 10 people. The United Nations Human Rights Office has called on the Egyptian president to listen to the Egyptian people and to engage in a serious national dialogue to prevent an escalation of the violence in the country. Rupert Colville, spokesperson for the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, says the office is following the extremely tense situation with great concern and has sent a strong message of solidarity and support to the Egyptian people, supporting their rights to freedom of expression and assembly. We urge the Egyptian government to continue to take all efforts to protect the rights of citizens to engage in peaceful protests and demonstrations. We regret the deaths that uh, Egypt has witnessed since Sunday and stress that any perpetrators of attacks against peaceful demonstrators should be held accountable. The Malian government says elections will go ahead as planned on the 28th of this month amid doubts over the nation's ability to organize a free and fair nationwide vote. Minister Moussa Singo Kolabali says the Ministry of Territorial Administration has never had any doubts. He says the distribution of voter cards had begun and there was a craze among Malians for the elections. The caretaker government announced the vote just over a month ago, raising questions about the possibility of inclusive polls in a nation recovering from a coup that paved the way for Islamist rebels to seize control of the north. The grandson of former South African President Nelson Mandela has until 3 o'clock this afternoon to return the remains of three of Nelson Mandela's children to Kunu from Mveso in the Eastern Cape Province. Sixteen members of the Mandela family, including Grossa Michel, were granted a court order against Chief Mantla Mandela on Friday. The Eastern Cape High Court is expected to make a final decision on the matter today. The Mandela relatives claim Mantla Mandela did not seek permission or even inform family members when he moved the remains. He's also facing a criminal charge for grave tampering. Janine Lee has more. 
Well, I think it will be something separate from the court case. Um, that will be an entirely separate matter. But confirmation from the police that grave tampering case has been opened. And they wouldn't say who had done it, but all indications are that possibly it is the Mandela family. Nelson Mandela has been in the Mediclinic Heart Hospital for more than three weeks following a lung infection. His condition remains critical but stable. And finally, women make up the largest number of victims killed, injured or intimidated with firearms at home, according to the latest global small arms survey. Data from 111 countries shows that about 66,000 women are killed violently each year, with most of the deaths occurring at home perpetrated by a current or former partner. The survey, which is published by the Swiss-based Geneva Graduate Institute finds that gender inequality, intolerance and cultural acceptance of the use of violence against women and common notions of masculinity that embrace firearms position combine to create a climate that places women at risk of domestic violence involving firearms. Research Director for the Smalls Arms Survey, Anna Alvazi Dalfreit. Our findings highlight that the risk of intimate partner violence with firearms is higher in countries with high levels of firearm violence in general. And the risk is increased by the presence of guns in the home, including work-related guns. Although most gun owners are men, the majority of victims of domestic violence are females. And that's the news for this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. The president of the UN Security Council says they are closely monitoring developments in Egypt, while Secretary General Ban Ki-moon calls for the political crisis to be resolved through dialogue. Millions of Egyptians across the country have been mainly protesting and deepening economic crisis and the imposition of Islamic law one year since Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi took office. Several people have been killed, while hundreds more have been injured. The United States, which is the presidency of the council for July is calling for a peaceful engagement. Show and Bryce Peace reports from the UN in New York. Egypt's army earlier issued the government with an ultimatum that expires today. Respond to the demands of protesters or they will impose their own roadmap. Ambassador Rosemary Daikalo is the deputy head of the U.S. mission to the United Nations and the current president of the U.N. Security Council. We've been very clear in our support for Egyptian democracy, for the process. The president's been very clear that, you know, we don't support one side or another. We're supporting a process that uh, individuals have the right to, um, to demonstrate, to, to speak openly, um, but should do so peacefully. The United States has called on the Egyptian government to be responsive to the protests, while the UN echoed calls for dialogue in expressing its support for the rights of Egyptians to protest. Rupert Colville is spokesperson for the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. We call on the President of Egypt to listen to the demands and wishes of the Egyptian people expressed during these huge protests over the past few days and to address key issues raised by the opposition and by civil society in recent months 
as well as to heed the lessons of the past in this particularly fragile situation. Colville urged the government to protect the rights of citizens to engage in peaceful demonstrations. We regret the deaths that uh, Egypt has witnessed since Sunday and stress that any perpetrators of attacks against peaceful demonstrators should be held accountable. We urge all political parties and social groups in Egypt to urgently engage in a serious national dialogue in order to find a solution to the political crisis and prevent an escalation of violence. Egypt is of strategic importance to the United States due to its proximity to Israel and as the most populous Arab nation in the Middle East. The Obama administration, supported by efforts here at the United Nations, is likely to use the leverage provided to it by the $1.3 billion in military funding to that country annually to push the parties to engage in political dialogue and for the military to remain on the sidelines of that process for now. Sherman Bricepies, New York. The Somali federal government has accused members of the Kenyan Defense Force in the country of violating their mandate. It says that Kenyan forces are supporting one side of the two fighting factions in the Somali civil war and demands the immediate withdrawal of Nairobi's troops from the country. Mwaiki Konyo reports. According to Somali's Minister for Information, Telecommunications and Postal Services, Abdishakur Mire, Kenyan Defense Forces in the AU Amazon Force in Somalia should be replaced immediately and a new force deployed in the country from a neutral African country. The accusation comes after three days of fighting around Kisimayu between forces loyal to Jubiland President Ahmed Madobe and a militia led by former Defense Minister Bar Hilare who has also been claiming the country's presidency. Mogadishu government claims that Kenyan forces in Somalia supports one side of the two fighting functions, contrary to their peacekeeping mandate. But in a telephone interview in Nairobi, Kenya's defense spokesman Colonel Cyrus Zaguna has refuted the allegations, claiming that Kenyan forces in Somalia have always remained neutral, despite the war situation in the country. Even as we talk about what happened on Saturday, it is important to appreciate the fact that KDF has remained neutral and will always be neutral to the events that are taking place in Kismayu. Saturday, there were skirmishes between various factions that did not affect the KDF. Uh, and on the basis of what happened on Saturday, come yesterday, there were various uh, militias that surrendered to the KDF locations because that is the only location, those are the only location they felt were more secure, where they could be able to be guaranteed security. But according to the Mogadishu government, Kenyan Defense Forces in Somalia recently arrested and mistreated a top Somali military commander, Colonel Abbas Gure. But military headquarters in Nairobi have vehemently denied the accusations, claiming that Kenyan soldiers in Somalia are victims of their generosity to the Somali people. Military spokesman Colonel Cyrus Zaguna. Those accusations are based on KDF generosity. You can probably say KDF is a victim of its own generosity, in the sense that the accusations arise from the fact that KDF facilitated the movement of one commander from Kismayu through Doble to Bussar. As we're speaking, the commander that KDF is alleged to have arrested is actually in Gedo region with SNA forces. And according to military sources in Nairobi, the latest statement by the Somali government marks an escalation of the difficult diplomatic and military situation facing Kenyan soldiers in Somalia, especially after the formation of the Jubiland regional state in southern Somalia. 
Sometimes Kenyan soldiers have been finding it difficult to maintain neutrality in the face of violence around them, which could also spill over to their camps. They are forced to watch helplessly. Currently, Kenyan soldiers in Somalia are in the hands of the African Union Force, AMISOM. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konya in Nairobi. Construction of the Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam on the Blue Nile continues even as Egypt raises concerns that it may affect the normal flow of water to its territory. The Ethiopian government is keen to have the dam completed by the year 2017, a target that it had earlier set even before complaints from Egypt. Correspondent Koleta Wanjohi in Addis Ababa has more. The Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is located in Benin-Shangul-Gumuz region of Ethiopia, about 40 kilometers east of the border with Sudan. Day and night, construction work at the dam site continues as the contractor strives to hand over to the Ethiopian government a completed project by the scheduled time of the year 2017. The target of the Ethiopian government is to build a power dam 145 meters high, 1,780 meters long, which at full capacity will hold 74 billion cubic meters of water, 16 units of power production and two powerhouses. This has, however, raised concern from Egypt, which claims that its historical and legal rights over the Nile River is being violated by Ethiopia's hydropower project. When the Ethiopian government diverted the course of the Nile River in May 2013, Egypt was concerned that even the normal flow of water into its territory would be negatively affected. However, the Ethiopian project manager, engineer Semegneu Bekele, says that diversion of the river is inevitable when one is constructing a dam across a river, as is the case now. And as you can see, is there any water diverted or uh, directed in another direction from its normal direction you can witness now? No. It flows upstream, downstream. The volume of water there upstream before the Y branch is same. The, the volume of water that uh, are downstream. So the direction still flows towards the Ethiopian border. The volume is there, whatever. So uh, it will not be affected and it's not affected. Ethiopia is currently using the expertise of Italian company Salini Costutori, which has the reputation of building 20 big dams in four continents. The company was awarded the $4.8 billion contract by the Ethiopian government in March 2011. The project manager of Salini Constitutory, Francesco Verdi, says that despite expected challenges from the oncoming rainy season, his company is optimistic that the dam construction will be completed as per schedule. And now the water that remained uh, trapped inside the two coffins that we have executed uh, will be slowly, slowly dewatered in order to allow us to enter inside the, the gorge of the river and start the cleaning and the rock reconstruction and to prepare the foundation for the dam. The hydropower project on the Blue Nile is expected to have a production of 6,000 megawatts of power. This will make the project the biggest in Africa and the seventh largest in the world. Engineer Semegneo Bekele, the Ethiopian Dam Project Coordinator, says Ethiopia is not ready to miss out on the benefits of this project and is asking its neighbors to support this cause that will also be beneficial to the continent. As you can see, uh, the dam uh, will be or being built across uh, the river uh, unless we uh, uh, make the normal course of the river where we are constructing the dam is free of water uh, it's difficult really to uh, further investigate the riverbed 
The Nile is the longest river in the world, flowing through some 11 countries including Ethiopia, Sudan, South Sudan and Egypt. It is the primary source of water for many of these countries, particularly Sudan and Egypt, whose mainly desert landmass is made fertile by the river as it flows into the Mediterranean. Egypt insists that it reserves the right to hold on to the largest share of the Nile water based on the British Nile Water Agreement of 1959. However, the other beneficiaries, with the exception of Sudan, have agreed to a new arrangement of using the Nile under a new forum called the Nile Basin Initiative. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Koleta Onjohi in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Kenyan consumers are bracing themselves for tough times ahead following the government's decision to reintroduce the value-added tax or VAT bill. The bill will see essential commodities go up by 16%, including flour, basic foods, diapers and drugs. Yesterday, consumers held protests ahead of the debate on the VAT bill in Parliament beginning today. Sarah Kimani reports. First, with a huge public wage bill and a current account deficit, the Kenyan government is digging deeper into all her citizens' pockets through the reintroduction of the value-added tax bill. Fred Omondi is a partner at Deloitte in Kenya. What they are doing is reducing the goods that were exempted, which means those that were not subject to VAT, and those which were subject to VAT at zero, what we call zero-rated goods. So they've reduced that list significantly and therefore you'll find products which were previously exempted or zero rated as we call it are now subject to VAT. The rate remains 16 which has always been there but now they've added more goods into the uh, goods and services into the VAT bracket. So, so if, if you are not paying VAT on for example UNGA now it will attract VAT. Much to the outrage of Kenyans, most of whom are already too poor to put food on the table. On Tuesday, as the government prepared to table the bill in Parliament for its first reading, a handful of them held protests across the streets, some symbolically carrying empty plates, mezfla or ugali, a popular dish made from the flour which is also expected to go up. Stephen Mutoro is the Secretary General of the Consumers Federation of Kenya, COFEC, a consumers lobby group that organized Tuesday's demonstrations. So today is actually a war between those people who want to support consumers and who want to kill consumers. And consumers are saying they're not going to die. Yes, because the VAT is passed on to the consumer, therefore you will, the consumer will pay more. And therefore, yeah, the cost of living for the consumer will obviously go up. The bill is a priority for the National Treasury. The Kenyatta administration sees it as a critical tool towards the government meeting its revenue targets. Analysts say the Kenyan government is left with little option. Tough decisions must be made, as Omondi explains. One is increased borrowing because then there will be a shortfall. As you know, the budget this year is quite significant, 1.6 trillion. And actually the taxes was only accounting for about half, which is 880 billion. So if that goes down, they have to borrow more to, to finance spending, or they'll have to cut off some of the expenditure. And what normally happens is uh, they cut down on the development expenditure, not the recurrent, because they still have to pay salaries, they have to, to do all these day-to-day -day, you know, um, activities. So what they cut down on, is maybe expenditure on things like roads and other projects which 
which is what we really need so so in the end we end up not really achieving our goals you know MPs have in the past opposed the new tax measures, forcing the executive to shelve a similar bill published two years ago. This time, it is likely to sell through the government-dominated house. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Despite anger in Europe over claims the U.S. had been caught spying, India has chosen to defend the action, saying revelations made by intelligence leaker Edward Snowden was about anti-terrorism operations. The defense came as India launched its own surveillance program, which advocacy groups warn will only allow the government to snoop on its citizens. Rana Sen reports. India, which has moved closer to the United States since signing a landmark nuclear power pact in 2008, said there was nothing wrong with Washington's snooping program, which has angered some of its close allies. Indian Foreign Minister Salman Khurshid insisted the United States use such information only for internal security, even as Germany, France and other European countries expressed anger. According to Snowden, India too was one of the victims of surveillance. The information that they got out of scrutiny, they were able to use it to prevent serious terrorist attacks in several countries. This is not uh, scrutiny and access to actual messages. It is only a computer study in a computer analysis of patterns of calls and patterns meaning the destination and that's the analysis that they do. It's not actually snooping on and specifically on anybody's, the content of anybody's message or anybody's conversation. India's stand came just days after U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry flew to New Delhi and promised a central role for India in Afghanistan's 2014 elections and wider cooperation between the two trading partners. And India's IT minister Kapil Sibal, who flagged off the the controversial national cybersecurity policy said the American snooping project was nothing but to keep the world safe from terrorism. All critical information must be protected, but that doesn't mean that in the name of critical information, we do not provide useful uh, and empowering information. But India's opposition dubbed it a surrender of Indian policy on privacy. Communist leader Sitaram Achuri demanded New Delhi must ask Washington to apologize. In case he is trying to justify what ought to be a legitimate Indian protest against this sort of interference into the privacy of individuals, uh, individuals, that is something on which there can be no compromise. The government of India has to very sternly and firmly tell any country in the world, including the US, that they cannot interfere into individual human rights and liberties of Indians. It has been the habit of the United States of America that in the name of global security and fight against uh, global terror, what they are doing is infringing upon the elementary human rights of individuals. India went a step ahead. It refused asylum to Snowden, who still holed up in a Moscow airport. The fugitive broke his 10-day silence and accused Washington of pressuring foreign capitals, including India, to reject his asylum applications. Reporting from New Delhi, I am Rana Sen. Several hundred people who had fled the 2011 Libya conflict refused to leave the Chucha refugee camp in southern Tunisia on Sunday as the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees announced that it would be shifting its services to urban areas of that country and that it would no longer service the camp. Chucha opened in early 2011 to shelter those fleeing the conflict that toppled Libya's former leader Muammar Gaddafi. Elizabeth Aster, UNHCR Deputy Representative in Tunisia, elaborates. 
what I can confirm is that nobody is being evicted from the camp. So nobody's being forced to leave the camp, and there's been no forced dismantling of tents. What's happening is UNHCR is shifting its services, or this has been happening for a while, shifting our services to urban areas so that refugees can live in apartments, so that they can access schools and health services in the urban areas. And this way, they no longer have to live in the difficult camp setting. This camp was a transit camp always. It was never intended to be a permanent camp. It's located very close to the Libyan border. It's on a major access road. It's in a, a very harsh climatic condition. So we have, for about one year now, been trying to plan for the closure of the camp, but not an end to our services, but a transfer of our services to urban areas where we feel refugees have the right to live in more dignified conditions. Some of the refugees who have been offered accommodations in Tunisia have, over the months, staged a protest to demand that they be resettled in the western part of the country. They say there's a lack of legislation on asylum seekers in Tunisia and that they are really victims of discrimination in that country and refuse to go back to Libya. What is your comment on that? The refugees are in Tunisia. They arrived in Tunisia in starting in February, March 2011. There's never been any effort to return them to Libya. These people fled, many of them fled Libya because of the atrocities happening inside Libya. Last decision we would ever make is to try to return them to Libya. But we are trying to give them the opportunity to live more normal lives in Tunisia. That, of course, does require a legal framework. I agree with you. And that's why we've been working with the government of Tunisia since August 2011 on a legal framework. They have a draft law. We'll actually have a meeting with the government on the 14th of July to review the draft law. Of course, the draft law is going to take time to be put in place. It'll take time to be adopted. It'll take time to put in place. But the government has already provided refugees unhindered access to health care, to education. Uh, refugees can enroll their children in schools, which is important because, I mean, having your education in a tent in the middle of a desert is not ideal conditions at all for children. So the fact that they're welcomed into Tunisian schools is a, ma- is a major advantage for us that we want to capitalize on. Also, when it comes to the legal framework, it is possible for the Tunisians to adopt interim measures, and that's what they're doing now. They're offering residence permits to the population that will not be resettled. That doesn't mean they have to live in Tunisia forever, but at least means while they're here, they have an ability to work, to rent apartments, and, and like I said before, to live in dignity. Ms. Esther, can you give us more details on the contents of this draft law? What does it actually entail? Well, because it's a draft law, I don't really know how much the government would appreciate me talking about it publicly. I just can say that UNHR is working with the government and we see a commitment on the part of the on the side of the government to really adopt a law that's in conformity with international standards and their obligations as per the the legal instruments for refugee protection. So I'm I'm not worried about the quality of the law. What may take time is just adopting the law and then we need to of course work with the government to build the structures that you need to put an asylum system in place, and that takes time. So we appreciate their initiative to adopt these interim measures to go ahead and provide residence permits to refugees who are already on on their territory. Refugees are not new to Tunisia. What was new to Tunisia was a mass influx, but prior to the influx from 
Libya, we had close to 100 refugees in urban areas. They don't have a problem living in Tunisia. The problem has been, you know, access to employment. The, the, legal, the legal structure being absent has been the problem. So the fact that the government has developed a draft law is a major breakthrough, and we're optimistic that with time it was, that law will be in place. And we appreciate in the meantime that there's interim measures such as temporary residence permits for the refugees who cannot return home and will not be forced to return home. Now, what happens to the refugees who are refusing to vacate the Chocha camp? Has there been a consideration to continue assisting them, given that they don't want to go anywhere else? We hope that they won't stay for too long because the conditions, as I mentioned, there are quite harsh and the assistance is available for them in urban areas. And we're in regular contact with them. The population has now gotten so small that we have a very close, we know the population. People know each other by names. They have mobile numbers of UNHR colleagues. They have the mobile numbers of UNHCR implementing partner staff, the Tunisian Red Crescent. So they know we're in regular contact with them. But of course, you know, they still live with the hope that there will be resettlement offered to them. And that's why maybe staying in the camp for, for longer will generate the attention they need to make that case. We now cross over to Anne Musa for our headlines for the morning. Good morning. Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi says he will not step down and has accused remnants of the previous regime of being behind the deadly unrest rocking the country. A court in Senegal has charged former Chadian President Hassan Habri with war crimes and crimes against humanity. And the Malian government says elections will go ahead as planned on the 28th of this month amid doubts over the nation's ability to organize a free and fair vote. Details and more at the top of the hour. Thank you, Anne. The new board of the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health in Africa met in Johannesburg recently to review the post-2015 development framework process and the development of the Every Newborn Action Plan to End Preventable Deaths. One of the delegates was the Deputy Executive Director of the United Nations Population Fund, Kate Gilmore. We asked her how the future of young people on the African continent was addressed on the post-2015 agenda. There are two big themes in telling the story of you know, the world's hopes for the future. That's all the development agenda is about. It's getting the world to articulate a commitment, in particular the world's leaders, to the world's population. What are they promised to get right in the next 10 years? Now, we've had the Millennium Development Goals, which included a goal to eradicate maternal mortality and child mortality. Africa's actually made terrific progress, but not enough progress. So the next 10 years, next 15 years are all going to be about pushing that agenda for change more strongly. It has to be about young people. In fact, young people is the fastest growing population in Africa. Not only do we have nearly 40% of the world's young people here, it's going to grow and grow and grow. So that's where our potential resides. For UNFPA, it means working on sexual and reproductive health issues so that young women stay at school, 
so that young men and women stay healthy in regards to their physical and mental health, and in particular with regards to sexually transmitted infections, means delaying child marriage. Too many young women in the continent of Africa are marrying under the age of 18 against the law and depriving them of all the educational opportunities that are so essential to build an employable labour force that can drive economic growth that will be more inclusive. So the themes of the new development agenda have to be about giving young people the tools they need to stay in school, stopping teenage pregnancy, delaying marriage, delaying the first child, providing access to family planning so births can be spaced and the number of children that women have can be a product of their choice and not just a product of chance. And do you see change happening? I mean, from the UNFPA side, can you say that we are reaching, we are getting closer to that goal we are chasing? Without question, maternal mortality, Africa has reduced by 40% in the last decade and this has been an extraordinary achievement but you know if you're born in Africa you have a 1 in 40 chance of dying from pregnancy 1 in 40 versus 1 in 4,000, 1 in 5,000 so that's one of the biggest equity gaps globally that we have to transform Africa's already made great inroads governments across the country have committed themselves at the highest levels to accelerating reduction in maternal mortality. But the challenge remains. And in the next decade or two, we have to make much more significant gains. And the answer lies with the story of the adolescent girl. Tomorrow is today aged 10. If we can change the life of today's 10 years old, and particularly the 10-year-old adolescent girl, we can change the world. My last question links to the word that you've just used. I believe that World Population Day this year as the theme adolescent pregnancy compared to teenage pregnancy. What is the prevalence of adolescent pregnancy? Why is it such an important topic to highlight? Do you know, by the time women reach the age of 24 in Africa, nearly 20% of them already have three children or more. Can you imagine what that means? When I was recently in Nigeria, I had the great privilege of watching the launch of a what's called a conditional cash transfer program to enable women to have resources to stay in the healthcare system prior to pregnancy, during birthing and post-pregnancy. And I handed a cheque in this conditional cash transfer to a new mother who at 18 already had three children. How can that be right? How can that be just? That's not sustainable. That's not how we build resilience into our communities. And I looked into her eyes as a white, wealthy woman, comparatively wealthy, and I felt, what a debt I owe you because I have not been party to sufficient transformation that means you have different choices in your life. How can it be that I'm party to a system That means you have three children by the time you're 18. But what is the solution to this? I mean, what projects will you in FPA drive to make people aware of what can be done to sensitize people around this? What we will try to do is three important things. Family planning, first and foremost. Ending child marriage. Secondly, comprehensive sexuality education to put information in the hands of people themselves. You know, we in the United Nations have to be held accountable to that 18-year-old with three children. We have to be able to, from the Secretary General, right throughout the system of the United Nations, 
into the presidential chambers of every government in the continent and into every health clinic. All of us with power and influence have to look that young woman in the eye and promise her that her daughter will have more choices and more options and more possibilities than we've been able to deliver for all our overseas aid and development, for all our fine promises at the African Union, for every president's commitment. At the end of the day, we must be judged by what happens to her daughters. And that's what we commit to over the next 10 to 15 years in this new development agenda, is to change the story for those children that that 18-year-old is bringing up today. That was Katie Gilmore, Deputy Executive Director of the United Nations Population Fund, talking to Janine Kutzer. Namibia is on a mission to boost foreign direct investment in an effort to catalyze economic growth. This is one of the key messages being driven at an investment seminar in Johannesburg, South Africa. The seminar, hosted by the Namibian Ministry of Trade, together with that country's High Commission in South Africa, seeks to showcase investment opportunities in areas like mining, agriculture and agro-processing, logistics, manufacturing and education. Ntlantla Matlangu reports. Held under the theme Namibia Partnering for Growth, the objective of the seminar is to procure foreign direct investment in four key areas. Deputy Trade and Industry Minister Tweya Jekero says Namibia boasts significant natural resources and has a stable economy with numerous investment opportunities. We have got plenty of opportunities. Beneficiation of value addition in our mining or with our mining uh, minerals like uh, gold, diamond. We need to put up our jewelry uh, factories. Tourism, we have got almost similar uh, situations. Agriculture, we need to produce food education-wise. We do not have enough education facilities and at times we don't need to duplicate the same opportunities. Bonaventura Hinda, commercial councillor at the High Commission of Namibia in Pretoria, South Africa, says her country is a vibrant nation with a growing economy centred around mining, agriculture, manufacturing and tourism. She says the seminar provides a unique opportunity for international investors to discover the potential of Namibia. There are investment opportunities in different sectors, but in terms of our national development plan, that is basically a tool to achieve our vision 2030. Today we are focusing on four sectors. That's logistics, infrastructure, manufacturing and education. Without education and without addressing the shortage of skills, you cannot achieve development. So there are opportunities in these sectors, but it's not the only opportunities that are there. There are opportunities in the energy sector. Energy is serious in terms of the need in Namibia. And we are inviting independent power producers to join us in Namibia and look at solar energy, wind energy, biomass, diesel, hydro. Those are areas that South African companies can tap into in production of energy in Namibia. Eric Murray, the chief executive officer at African Precious Metals, is a delegate at the seminar. He says Namibia occupies a very strategic place in southern Africa. I think there's a few strategic information which you actually don't know as the local public. 
especially um, the one thing that we are very interested in is the political stability. Like the, uh, the Honourable Minister said that uh, stability gives you um, definitely economic power and economic growth which is from our side very important. Uh, the other thing that's also very informative for us is the new developments and Vision 2030. 2030 is one of the visions which we think is very excellent. Uh, the other thing that helps us, especially in that, is the new port, uh, terminal ports we're, we're interested in. We're interested specifically in the logistic um, part of it and also the financial sector. You know, I think uh, when there's economic growth between 3 and 5%, uh, inflation rate that is single digits, man, that is a place where it needs to be. I think um, the next sector that is going to be huge in, in globally is going to be the agricultural market. And going with that, uh, all the other benefits and sectors that go support with it. Delegates at the seminar heard that Namibia is in the process of developing new legislation that will govern both domestic and foreign direct investment in that country. The new law aims to improve Namibia's investment climate and will replace the existing Foreign Investment Act of 1990. The new law will, among other things, clearly define who an investor is, give due recognition to both domestic and foreign direct investments, design sectors or categories of businesses that will open investments for Namibians, foreign investors and the state. Reporting of Owo Channel Africa, I am Glantla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. Economists are warning that South Africa could face a possible downgrade should it incur a larger fiscal debt. Moreover, if it fails to finance its current account deficit, it could weaken the currency even further. Last year, Moody's ratings agency mentioned the risk of a possible downgrade should South Africa's fiscal position deteriorate. Murafe Tabane has more on this and how it will affect consumers. The current account captures the activities of trade between one country and other countries. A deficit occurs when a country imports more than it exports. In the case of South Africa, there's been sluggish demand from the Eurozone, which is the country's biggest trading bloc. Production has also been slow, particularly in the mining industry, which is our biggest foreign exchange earner. Tabi Lefoka, an economist at Standard Bank, says although the current account narrowed slightly in the first quarter, there are numerous challenges which are still facing the country. We do have problems, um, structural, cyclical and temporary, that are um, compressing, or at least that will limit the compression of the current account. Um, you know, firstly, we are a low domestic saving country. We rely a lot on foreign investment. About 40% of our current debt is um, held by foreign investors. We're also very um, sensitive to any you know news flow from South Africa, especially if it's bad. So any outflow will have an impact on the funding of the current account. Sub-Saharan currency strategist at EPSA, Mike Keenan, agrees with Lefoga. It's a very distinct risk facing South Africa. As you mentioned, we've got this large current account deficit. We've also got a fairly large fiscal deficit. Um, and these are the kind of metrics that the rating agencies pay particular attention to. And yes, uh, they've outlined it quite clearly that if there aren't improvements on uh, these balances and on these metrics, uh, South Africa is, could very well face another downgrade. Now, what that means is, is that when South Africa wants to issue uh, debt uh, in the international markets or domestically, um, it's probably going to cost the government that much more because there's, a, there's an increased risk associated with buying South African debt. 
The deficit is also affected by temporary and more random effects of the rent depreciation. The prognosis for 2013 is for further trade deficits, which will likely keep the current account deficit under pressure. Our GDP is growing very slowly, and um, you know, monetary policy um, has been you know, stimulating uh, growth somewhat. But uh, monetary policy has very little room, and so does fiscal policy. And if we, you know, um, have we incur a larger fiscal debt, that means that both, you know, on the fiscal side will be um, more pressure. There'll be pressure coming from the fiscal side as well. Tabi, should we be worried? Um, yes, we should, especially because you know they they are I think what the governor calls idiosyncratic risks, so both domestically and um, externally. When oil prices go up and the rent weakens, it exacerbates the situation. This exerts more inflationary pressures on our economy. Keenan again. With this large, persistently large current account and trade deficit, we are probably going to be saddled with a weak rand for the foreseeable future. That has a secondary impact in that a weaker rand normally translates into higher inflation. Um, that is because we import a lot of um, goods and, and material from abroad, and the weaker the exchange rate, the higher those, the more expensive those those goods become. So the man in the street will lose sort of his purchasing power or his buying power uh, related to the currency, and also he could have to contend with higher inflation, which of course. Uh, in turn can translate into high interest rate costs. The Reserve Bank has highlighted the risks posed by the current account to the rand and the upside risk that a vulnerable currency poses to inflation. Economists argue that South Africa is faced with a risk of currency weakness and slow growth, which makes it difficult for monetary policy decision-making. They say before the recent currency weakness, the decision to cut rates was clearer. However, the weakening currency now throws a spanner in the works. We now cross over to Tabiso Luhuku for our economics update. Namibia is on a mission to boost foreign direct investment in an effort to catalyze economic growth. This is one of the key messages being driven at an investment seminar in Johannesburg. The seminar, hosted by the Namibian Ministry of Trade together with that country's High Commission in South Africa, seeks to showcase investment opportunities in areas like mining, agriculture and agro-processing, logistics, manufacturing and education. Zambia's Deputy Trade and Industry Minister Duwea Sekiro. We have got plenty of opportunities. Beneficiation of value addition in our mining or with our mining uh, minerals like uh, gold, diamond. We need to put up our jewelry uh, factories. Tourism. We have got almost similar uh, situations. Agriculture. We need to produce food. Education-wise, we do not have enough education facilities and at times we don't need to duplicate the same opportunities. 
South Africa's Deputy President Khalema Motlante says he's satisfied that business, labor and government are keeping their commitments under a framework agreement which is aimed at resolving problems in the mining sector. Motlante will today convene meetings with representatives of the sector. The agreement was reached in a meeting that Motlante held with the mining houses and trade unions last month. President Jacob Zuma has tasked Mutante with leading talks between unions and mining companies. The deputy president's spokesperson, Tabo Masebe. Now, once they have signed the agreement, they would then go away and then come up with uh, plans that would see them fulfill those commitments that they have made. And then as a forum, there's going to be a mechanism that would help to monitor implementation of all those things that we agreed. There are things that will be done by the sectors themselves, labor, business, and government separately. And there are things that would be done by the forum working, renting all of these sectors. South African consumers are spending more on transport. This as the price of petrol increased by 84 cents per litre at midnight. This has brought the price of 93 octane petrol to exactly $1.30 and that of 95 octane to $13.28 per litre. The diesel is up by $78.02 per litre, while illuminating paraffin has increased by $0.75 cents per litre. South Africa's house price growth continued to accelerate last month, growing on average by over 6.5% year-on-year. This is according to the First National Bank's latest property barometer. The June increase compares with year-on-year growth of 6.2% in May. The average value of houses transacted in the bank's house price index was just over $89,000. In the light of weak economy and resultant weakened disposal income, the bank expects house price growth to remain in single digits in the near term. South Sudan's shipment of its first crude cargoes in June after 17 months out of the market on top of failing Japanese demand for similar medium to heavy sweet grades has sent premiums tumbling. The resumption knocked August prices of one heavy sweet or low sulfur crude from Australia to one and a half year lows and pressured other premiums for other medium to heavy grades, improving margins for refiners able to run such oils. Chan Oil and Unipac, the trading arms of PetroChina and Sinopec, have snapped up cheaper barrels after South Sudan and neighbor Sudan resolved a dispute over pipeline fees that had been running since January 2012. The U.S. dollar trades at 9.91 South African rand, 65 British pound, 76 euro, 1 U.S. dollars worth 8.44 Botswana pulas, 5.43 Zambian kwachas, gold $1,245, platinum $1,364 an ounce, brand crude $106.35 a barrel. This as I hand over to Tommy Kloza with his sports update. Thanks for joining us in our, sports, in our sports update. President of the Nigerian Football Federation, Alhaji Aminu Maigari, 
has expressed confidence in the ability of home-based players to fly gloriously over the elephants of Ivory Coast in the African Nations Championship qualifier in Kaduna this Saturday. My guess is the Eagles coming up with a solid performance at the Amadou Bello Stadium in Kaduna on Saturday. That will make the return leg in Abidjan on July the 27th a mere formality. Nigeria go up against the Ivorians in the first senior team clash between both nations since the Eagles eliminated then the Cup favorites elephants in the quarterfinals of the 29th edition Cup of Nations in South Africa. The Eagles, who have been camping in Abuja since Sunday, will travel to Kaduna today to intensify preparations ahead of the big game. And Uruguay solved the challenge of a 10-man Nigeria to book a meeting with Spain in the FIFA Under-20 World Cup quarterfinals and thanks to a 2-1 win during their round 16 stages match in Istanbul last night, Nicolas Lopez scored twice in the second half after Abdullahi Seshu was sent off towards the end of the first half with Odiluaru Kayoje pulling Nigeria briefly to level. Earlier in the day, Spain striker Jesse scored in the injury time as team came from behind to beat Mexico 2-1 and set up a quarterfinal against Uruguay. On the other hand, France, who defeated Turkey 4-1, will now face Uzbekistan, which had never before gone beyond the group stage but defeated Greece in a match that included three penalties and two red cards. And our back home, newly appointed South African Premier Soccer League CEO Brent Devilliers says increasing the number of spectators at games will be a key area for him to address during the during his tenure. Previously, the director of rugby at the Blue Bulls, Devilliers says, the problem is not isolated to soccer. Devilliers mentioned the considerable growth in local game over the years and says it is vital for that trend to continue. Well, attendance is a problem across South African sport. You know, if you go to rugby uh, that I can talk of, the attendance has been down over the last few years. If you look at the cricket attendance, it's down, you know. So, yes, attendances are down, maybe down or maybe low, and that's definitely an area which we, we need to focus on. De Villiers says that having a good relationship with all the stakeholders, including South African Football Association, SAFA, is a priority for the PSL. Well, I mean, that will be one of the objectives is to, to increase the revenues of the league, whichever way, you know, through media or sponsorships or, you know, whichever avenue we can increase. Look, any business has got either shareholders, this business has got members. The members have got exec, I'm part of the executive, and uh, I'm confident as part of the executive, the executive takes decisions. Is then my role then to go and implement the decisions, you know, and I, I see that as a big part of my role to implement the wishes of the members. The South African Deaf Sports Federation says without funding, all 29 athletes set to compete at this year's Deaf Olympics will be unable to do so. The Federation spokesperson Tepiso Mokwela says that they had entered into an agreement with the National Lottery Fund, but no funds have arrived yet. Molela says Saskok has been unwilling to assist them. Their participation at the Olympics, which kicks off in two weeks' time in Bulgaria, solemnly depends on the funding. If we don't get sponsorship, 29 deaf athletes will be deprived with the opportunity of participating. From the National Lotto Board, I had a verbal agreement that our application has been approved, but nothing has been coming forth. Sasko President Gideon Sem. 
they apply to the lot and we are not in charge of the lot. The only thing that we can do is always to encourage the lot to speed up processes and that's how far we can go. That's the unfortunate thing, you know. You can call them and say, please, guys, can you speed up this? Uh, that's how far we can go. The funds is not in our pocket. And in tennis, German Sabine Lisiski lived up to her status as the new Wimbledon favorite with a clinical 6363 demolition of Kaya Kanepi in the quarterfinals of the Wimbledon. Lisiski will play fourth seed Agnieszka Radanska or sixth seed Lina in her second Wimbledon semi final. Chris Bowers reports. The absence of the biggest names in women's tennis may reduce the attractiveness from outside, but yesterday's four women's quarterfinals provided some wonderful tennis. Only one was genuinely one-sided, Sabina Lizikis went over Kaya Kanepi, but the matches between Radvanska and Lee and Kvitova and Flipkins were wonderfully watchable. Radvanska's all-court craft and phenomenal retrieving triumphed over Lee's power, while Flipkins' slicing and dicing got the better of the blunt instrument that was Petra Kvitova, albeit a slightly under-the-weather Kvitova. At a time when women's tennis is desperate for a bit of variety, it's refreshing to see Radvanska and Flipkins in a Grand Slam semi-final. Today's men's quarterfinals don't have Federer or Nadal in them. They were part of last week's carnage, but they do have five of the world's top eight. David Ferrer, who'll move to at least third in the rankings after Wimbledon, trumps Novak Djokovic for centre court billing. Ferrer taking on Juan Martin del Potro, followed by Andy Murray against Fernando Vadasco, while Djokovic plays on court one against Thomas Birdie. And South Africa's Chanel Scapers plays her women's doubles quarterfinal. She and Shuka Ayoyama not having to face the top seeds Irani and Vinci, but the 16th seeds Gerges and Salava Vastritseva. And that's the end of our sport. And back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. The situation in Egypt deteriorates despite international bodies calling for a peaceful resolution. And Somalia's federal government is demanding the immediate withdrawal of Nairobi's troops from its country. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine for today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebu Munamukulu, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or write to us at, or SMS us at plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour.